Take your Bibles, turn to Acts 16, will you? We're going to be talking about the section in verses 16 through 40. You know, when God calls us to serve and use our gifts for the sake of the kingdom, it's a high honor. Amen? Amen. It's a high honor. The Apostle Paul speaks of being a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. The highest honor is to be used by the highest authority for eternal purposes. The highest honor is to be used by the highest authority for eternal purposes. The house here is the church. The master is the head, Jesus Christ. And we're given a responsibility in this passage to be clean vessels fit for use, it says elsewhere in this passage. There's added motivation that Christ may use us for the sake of others coming to faith. We read this out of 2 Timothy. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You know, many came out yesterday to help us clean the church. And it may seem like a minuscule thing to, to dust and, you know, to clean. But it all adds up to the church being hospitable, that others know when they come in this place that they are valued, that they are welcomed in this place, that they can be ministered to, that they can hear the gospel. Large or small tasks all play a part in our mission, right? That's why some of our own are right now in Guatemala, spending their own money, taking their own vacation time, ministering to others. They are honorable vessels. And so were the ones who went to Victory Mission this week to, to feed people and to, and to minister. And so are the ones who minister at, at Jobs for Life, helping others be, uh, be trained so that they can get employment. We have a motivation from God to be an honorable vessel, and we have a motivation to see others built up in Christ and come to Christ. When Paul says, I endure everything for that, he's not meaning, you know, he's enduring the accolades. He's enduring the compliments. He's enduring all the thanks that he gets from others. No, that's not what he's saying. He's thinking of ridicule, persecution, jail, uh, for clarification, he elaborates elsewhere when he says this. Imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So when Paul talks about enduring, he's talking about continuing to minister, continuing to serve, continuing to be faithful to the calling 
that God has, has put on his life in the midst of being imprisoned, beaten, lashed, without food, and then just stress on a daily basis. Think about this the next time you want to opt out of your marriage or the next time you're thinking about quitting serving Christ or quitting the body of Christ because of past hurts. Consider the context of what enduring really means from a biblical perspective. I'm so encouraged to know how many of you have endured. Some of you have endured an affair. And when your spouse repented, you opted to stay and build something new. Some of you have endured sexual and physical abuse. Some of you have endured being rejected by your own family because of your faith. Some of you have endured sickness or loss of a job, and a myriad of other hardships, and you continue to serve Christ and to keep your eye upon the God-given mission, being an honorable vessel and participating in endeavors that contribute to others growing in Christ and coming to Christ. So God bless you for being faithful. God bless you for staying committed to that mission. Our mission does not stop at hardship. Rather, it is strengthened, it is purified, it is challenged in hard times. And Paul certainly found that out after seeing a great victory with Lydia. A shining star, a wonderfully encouraging moment. And soon after... He is beaten, thrown in jail. For what? Helping another girl. Mark it down. Victory and bright moments are often followed by challenging moments that remind us of our need to continue to depend upon Christ and not rosy circumstances, you know, being chained together like some endless fairy tale. That's not the life that Christ promises. We have to remind ourselves of this truth, as Peter says. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. The mature Christian expects the hardship, does not think that they're entitled to a road of ease. So with that as a backdrop, let's all stand as we take a look at our passage in Acts 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. 
They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So they were traveling to a place of prayer, and they are met by a demon-possessed person. We could say right off the bat, prayer is not escape from the battle. It is where the battle takes place. Right? They were met by a slave girl. Now, the use of the word girl and not woman implies that this was a young girl, possibly in her teens. The girl is said to have a spirit of divination accompanied by fortune-telling. It's interesting that the word for divination is the same word from which we get our word python. Isn't that weird? The idea goes back to the Greek city of Delphi where the idol Apollo was believed to be embodied by a python. The original priestess at Delphi was purported to be possessed by Apollo and thereby able to predict the future. And it was believed that anybody possessed by the python spirit could foretell coming events. Now, this was not some off-the-wall sideshow in a Roman province, but something far more mainstream for Rome. Commanders of major military campaigns and even the emperor would consult such people to see how things would turn out. A slave girl with a clairvoyant gift was a veritable gold mine for these owners. And so we could say it this way, she was twice bound. She was bound economically. She was bound spiritually. And clearly, such practices are not to be entertained by true believers. Our culture is becoming more and more familiar with these spirit world practices. But they're destructive. There is no substitute for the genuine edifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And Paul said, no, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. Verse 17 says, She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now the us implies that at this point, Luke, Silas, and Timothy are still with Paul. And as they made their way daily to this prayer spot, which remember was by a river about a mile and a half from the city gates at Philippi. Uh, It was at the same spot where they met Lydia. So this girl was following them on this mile and a half walk. And the text says that she was crying out. The verbs for followed and crying out indicate that this was continuous action. She kept following. She kept shouting. Now, in the least, this would be very irritating, would it not? 
We might think, though, but what was the problem? I mean, isn't she saying that God is the God and the most high God? And isn't she saying that, you know, Jesus is the, is the way of salvation? Well, the combination of her shouting and what she was actually implying give us some clues. And after days of this, Paul could discern that something was not right. The fact is that Gentiles use the term most high God to refer to Zeus, another pagan god. So, you know, this wasn't some phrase reserved for Jesus alone, the one true God. And then I add this. This is from Wave Nunnally in his commentary on Acts. He said, the Greek actually reads a way to be saved. Satan was evidently satisfied in that pluralistic culture as he is in ours to have people believe that there are many ways to God and that all are equally effective. It's interesting and instructive that the absence of one word, the definite article the, was enough to change a correct biblical statement into a compromised message that removes the uniqueness of Jesus. End quote. And I would add in one Pew Forum research project, they said half of evangelicals believe other religions lead to God. Michael Lindsay, a sociologist at Rice University, said this, I think it really underscores the sense that the issue with religion in America is not that Americans don't believe in anything, it's that they believe in everything. Religion is 3,000 miles wide, but it's only three inches deep. End quote. Luke wrote that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I would contend that a, a mindless tolerance leaves people open to any error being just as valid as truth. However, no other supposed Savior meets the qualifications except for Christ. The exclusivity of Christ is the only option for human beings to have their sins forgiven. It's the only option because there is no other sufficient sacrifice that can satisfy a holy and righteous God and represent humans before that God because he was both man and God. He was the perfect sacrifice. Hebrews says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We said it before, you can be so open-minded, your brains leak out. And in terms of salvation in Christ alone, he's not one of many. He's the only one that can provide salvation. Verse 18, and this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Since this girl was behaving this way for days, Paul had opportunity to observe and to discern. This was not a, a snap judgment. And he was annoyed. Yes, Apostles got irritated and annoyed and experienced the full range of emotions just like anybody else does. Also notice that Paul addresses the demon 
and not the girl. He tells the demon to leave the girl in the name of Jesus Christ, and immediately the demon leaves. In Mark 3, 26-30, we read a section about Jesus being accused of teaming up with Satan. And this is what he says. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Satan is the strong man. His house is the realm of sin, demon possession, and death. His possessions are people who are enslaved to one or many of these things. And demons are his agents who carry out his diabolical activity. No one can enter his realm to carry off or plunder his possessions, it says here, unless the person is stronger than Satan. Well, who fits that bill? Only one person can bind Satan. Only one person fits that bill, and that's Jesus Christ. And he's proved this at the cross. It is through the forgiveness of sins in Christ that Satan is plundered. Christ binds Satan by his work on the cross, and he sets people free from sin. The mission of Jesus is to confront and overpower Satan and to deliver those enslaved by him. So to the degree that we operate in the name and the power of Jesus, we can see people set free, even from demonic activity, as we appeal to the power and the name of Christ. It's the only power we have in dealing with those kinds of situations. And I've seen it with my own eyes. Verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. So Paul and Silas are dragged into the marketplace or what was called the Agora. Now, Timothy and Luke are not chosen because they were known to have Gentile heritage. They were focusing in on these full-blooded Jews. In fact, in the excavations of Philippi, this agora or forum has been uncovered. It had a raised podium with, with stairs on either side. It was where civil cases were tried, just like this one. Except <laughs> this really wasn't a case where there was a trial because it wasn't a trial. There was no looking at the evidence. And by the way, this is not a Jewish tribunal. This is a Roman one. This is something new for Paul. The persecution is now including civil authorities. Notice that the girl's owners don't divulge the real motive, which was losing money. This is interesting to me because I see this a lot. People often don't tell you the real issues that trouble them, especially if those issues may reveal something in their own hearts. 
So what do these owners uh, do? They appeal to an anti-Jewish prejudice and a Roman nationalism. But just a year before this episode, I mentioned this last week, Claudius, the Roman emperor, threw Jews out of Rome. They didn't like them. I mean, this would play well in a community of Romans who were mostly former soldiers there in Philippi. Hey, these men are Jews. <laughs> Enough said, right? But they're also upsetting our peaceful community by trying to, you know, proselytize and have us worship one God only. Those that were listening to these charges in the public square, man, they got ginned up. And so they join in and strip them of their clothes. And they're being beaten with rods. I mean, public beatings were a useful way to discourage other followers. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So Paul and Silas suffered many blows. You ever suffered because of false accusations? then you know it's not an easy thing to endure. We're going to see how they endured next week. But with no trial, no hearing, really no opportunity to defend themselves, at least right here, they were beaten with wooden rods and then thrown into an inner cell of the prison. Their feet, placed in stocks. I mean, the Romans wanted to make sure that there would be no escaping. They'd heard stories about these guys. They'd heard about incidents of the, you know, supernatural activity. And so it makes the miracle that's going to happen, as we read next week, even all the more remarkable. You know, as I read through the book of Acts, I remember asking God, to allow me just to be open to whatever that it is that he wanted to say to me regarding the activity of the Spirit of God. It's no secret to us that we live in a, a community in which there's a diversity of opinion about the Spirit of God's activity in churches. Filled with the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, tongues, you throw all of that into it, everybody's got an opinion, and the church seems to not be able to come to a, to a conclusion. For my mind, I mean, I, the way I resolve it with my brothers and sisters, I try not to make it a big deal. Except here, I make it a big deal. Let me tell you why. It's because I think when we think wrongly about these things, that it can lead us to living in a way that can be very discouraging. So as your pastor, I want to make sure that we challenge ourselves in this regard. So this is what I mean by this. That if Paul and Silas counted on lack of adversity as a sign of the Spirit, then we could probably say they were rarely filled with the Spirit. If, if, if being filled with the Spirit meant, meant healing and things are going to be going well for me when I'm operating in the Spirit, then we could say Paul was rarely filled with the Spirit. Because this guy had troubles 
everywhere he went. We don't see him and Silas questioning, you know, what did I do to deserve this? We don't see them saying, you know what? The Holy Spirit must have departed from us because look what we're having to deal with. In this area where people are thoroughly confused as to what it means to be filled with the Spirit and enjoy the presence of the Spirit, we have to look at all of these episodes as a whole as they happen throughout Acts. We should note that the context of their worship, because you know the story, don't you? Later on in this chapter, they're singing in jail, okay? The context of their worship was that they were in a jail cell, but their hearts are very sincere in praising God in this context of, in the midst of this persecution, of this difficulty. I mean, their view of worship, I just want to add, was far deeper than a surface analysis that, like it is in American evangelicalism today, it has to be a certain type of music. You have to have people's hands in a certain position. You have to repeat a chorus 27 times. There were no tongues, there was no piano, no drums, no hand raising, no dancing, which would have been hard anyway after being lashed and having your feet and hands in stock. And yet the Spirit of God was moving in them just as powerfully there than at any other point throughout all of Acts. We cannot pigeonhole God to only show up when it's consistent with our taste or even our backgrounds or our experience. And nothing wrong with those experiences. I'm not saying that. But you can't say, this is only how God is going to fill you with the Spirit. God moves mightily in prison cells and in conflict and in the midst of sickness and when our backs are seemingly against the wall. We have to expand our view of the Spirit, not limit it. The reason I drive this point home is because a narrow view of the Spirit hinders our ability to endure in tough times. When we look at the Spirit's activity only in a certain way, we may miss many opportunities of recognizing God's work. If God is moving in hardship, and hardship, you know, we may not want to see or be a part of, we can get greatly discouraged by expecting his spirit to move in just one way. And we're not recognizing, wait a minute, he helps me endure. How many times have you heard somebody say, and this is the more accurate, biblical, I think, synopsis of it all, is that person must be filled with the spirit. Why? Because they endure trials. They're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. No, you know what we do is we take one small version of how people interpret that and say, well, that person must be filled because they're exhibiting this gift or they have their hands raised. It's amazing to me that we're, we're relegating the filling of the Spirit to a 20-minute worship service on Sunday morning and one gift. And what I'm saying is, don't limit the Spirit of God. He moves in all ways, in all of life. And if a person can be filled in a jail cell and sing with his feet locked and his hands locked, and the Spirit of God was using that to free others, maybe we ought to rethink 
what it means to have the Spirit of God using us. Did you know that when the Bible speaks of being filled with the Spirit or being in the Spirit, one of the ways he demonstrates that is endurance? And here is a living testimony of that in Acts. Right after being persecuted in Acts 13, we read in verse 52 that Paul continued on and was filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Persecuted, continuing to minister, filled with the Spirit. Your endurance in the face of trials and continuing to praise God and continuing to be faithful to God is one of the great marks of the Spirit of God working in your life. I'm not saying God doesn't move in the gift or in the worship. I'm saying let's not limit it to that. I'm saying let's see God work in all of life and welcome his spirit's activity. And let's certainly not judge others that they don't have that gift or they don't have that expression, therefore they're not filled. That is a partisan view of the Holy Spirit. We learned today that one girl was set free from being a hostage to demons. Let us not be hostage to a narrow view of the Spirit's activity. And next week, we're going to learn that Paul was not hostage to prison doors. It's a great story.